So Kyle. Yeah, Tyler. Did you hear that uh, there was an SEO professional that had twins last week? An SEO professional had twins last week? No, I, I have not heard this. Yeah, and uh, she was pretty ticked about it. Do you know why? No, why? Because every SEO hates duplicated content. <laughs> yeah, that is true. I know that it's true. That's a good one. Okay, I like that one. Plus twice the diapers. Oh, now nah, that's where you lost me. That stinks. <laughs> Welcome to the Lion's Share Podcast, for marketing leaders, by marketing leaders, brought to you by Fidelitas Development. All right, everybody, welcome to episode 14 of the Lion's Share Marketing Podcast. I'm your co-host, Tyler Sickmeyer, along with Kyle, your Tinder hot match of the day, Weber. <laughs> Kyle, have you tried that tip yet? It's to episode two for... Yeah. Uh, I have not tried that tip yet. And if you're wondering about it, you really should go check out episode two with Brian Switchko. It's a great episode and he has some pretty funny tips. Yeah, that's it's pretty funny. Why haven't you tried that yet? I don't know because I'm doing real campaigns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, split test everything. Yeah. Uh, we've got a great episode lined up today, Kyle. Uh, as you know, our featured guest is Charlie Cole from Toomey and Samsonite. Uh, yeah. Great e-commerce mind, a lot of great insights regarding e-commerce and building a global brand and what that looks like. And can't wait to hear from him later. But Kyle, first, before we get to that, tell us, what's in the news? News team, assemble! So today, Tyler, we'll be talking about an amazing new feature for marketers that Facebook recently released called Offline Events. Have you heard of this yet? I have. Quite the game changer for uh, Facebook marketers that have brick and mortar stores. Oh, it really, truly is. Okay, so this is what Facebook says about it. And I quote, with offline conversion measurement capabilities on Facebook, you can track when transactions occur in your physical business location and other offline channels after people see or engage with your Facebook ads. They go on to say, by matching transaction data from your customer database or point of sale system to ads reporting, you can better understand the effectiveness of your advertising campaigns across all objectives on Facebook Instagram and audience network. So this is a big, big, big deal because now you can track your offline conversions. So let me just kind of explain this. Up until now, you may have run some Facebook ad campaigns for your brand that may have led to some phone orders or in-store purchases. And you were unaware that the sale should be attributed to a specific Facebook campaign that you ran earlier that week or whenever. But guess what? That data can be measured now. And to quote the wonderful Molly Pittman from Digital Marketer, she says, this is huge for any business that may suffer from a black hole in their tracking because transactions, for example, lead gen, sales, et cetera, aren't always occurring on web pages where Facebook can track. So how does this work? Tyler, I think what we need to really do here is just give a real life example. So let's say you felt really inspired, and I'm talking really inspired, by episode 12 of the Lion Share Marketing Podcast, where we interviewed the CEO of Modern Man, Dan Ferris. Remember that? Yes, I do. Great episode. Okay. And let's just say that you completely agree with him that we have to save the human race by making men look better. So you decide to start that retail business you've been dreaming about selling men's lingerie. Mm. What do you think? Sounds like tight margins. 
Okay, well, good. I, definitely tight margins. And I'm glad because I already have a name for it. You want to know what it is? I'd love to hear it, Kyle. Tyler's Tidy Whities. <laughs> what do you think? I, we have to check and see if that domain name is available. Sounds pretty fly. Oh, okay. I see what you did there. Okay. So Tyler, say you decide that you're going to create this online store, but not only are you going to have an online store, you also decide to open a brick and mortar location as well. Okay. And why not? I don't know. I mean, everyone needs tidy whities, right? And just remember, Kyle, our listeners are on a time crunch. So let's keep this brief. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and the jokes keep coming. Okay, so Tyler, say you decide to run a Facebook ad campaign. You need to get the word out there that you've got tidy whities for the masses, right? So you start making sales online, and we can measure that because of the Facebook pixel. But you're also seeing that you're making some in-store sales too, but you're not really sure if it's because of the ad campaign that you're running or not. So this is where offline events comes into play, all right? So let's just kind of back up here and say exactly what we need to do. So Tyler, you go into your business manager, okay? And by the way, we're just not, we're not going to go into a deep dive into this, into all the steps here. Uh, and we'll definitely link to some of the resources for that so that you can get like the step-by-step -step information on what you do to set this up. But let's just say that you go into your Facebook business manager and you go under assets and you click on the offline events link. And can I just say that the Tyler's Tidy Whitey business has some very nice assets. Oh, it has the best assets by far. Five-star reviews across the board. No doubt, 100%. So Tyler, you've been making these in-store sales, but you've also been collecting data on those purchases through your POS system, right? So then what you'll do is you'll take all the data from that. You'll create a CSV file of all that data. And what you'll do is you'll take that and you'll upload it into your business manager under offline events for the custom data that they want. Now, Facebook is looking for as many data points as possible, and there's up to 17 different identifiers for the customer. And then there are some event descriptors that give information about the sale, like the value, currency, and time. So Facebook will take that information and match it with those who saw the ad previously to making their offline purchase. So boom, we now have a more accurate picture of that customer journey. And we can now make better decisions on what we should do for the next Tidy Whitey's campaign. Sounds like you'd be nuts not to try it. Oh, okay. Yeah, I just don't even know what to do with that one. Uh, but okay, I do have a side note though. So a lot of people are probably saying, I have to upload a CSV file every time or however often I need to upload the CSV file. That sounds like a lot of work. Well, I do know, and we're not going to get into details on this, but it does sound like there is a way to automate this through some of the Facebook partners and also through some of these other tools that exist out there through third parties. So keep an eye out for that as well, because that is really important, I think, to be able to automate it if you can. Yeah, Kyle, and I think a lot of our marketing leaders and agencies alike need to remember that if you're not tracking your online conversions and setting goals and priorities there, it's going to be very tough to track your offline ones as well. You know, it's important to remember this is supplemental to the tracking and reporting that you should already be doing with your online campaigns. And you alluded earlier to some insight from our uh, friends over at Digital Marketer, great folks over there, a lot of insight, and they were... Uh, some of the first to talk about this. And one of the things that they brought up was a good point with where the data is going long term. And this really is just the start. 
with more and more data being shared between credit card companies and social platforms like Facebook and the other half of that duopoly, Google, along with retailers, the sky's the limit when it comes to being able to track what you're doing and how you're spending your money and what ads you saw before you did it. So creepy from an end user standpoint, awesome from a marketing standpoint, if you're willing to take the time to pay attention and uh, adjust your campaigns based off the data that you have available. Absolutely. What do you think the next step is for Tyler's Tidy Whities? Well, global domination. Oh, of course, in style. <laughs> All right, enough talk about Tidy Whities. Let's get to today's interview with our featured guest, Charlie Cole. All right, everybody, welcome to another interview with Charlie Cole here on the Lionshare Marketing Podcast. We're very excited to have Charlie. He's got an extensive e-commerce background, lots of great knowledge to share with us today. For those of you that don't know, Charlie is the Global Chief E-Commerce Officer at Samsonite. He's also the Chief Digital Officer uh, for Toomey Luggage. And uh, before that, he was the VP of E-Commerce at Lucky Brand and also the CEO for The Line. So extensive retail and e-commerce experience, and we can't wait to have him share with us today. So Charlie, welcome to the Lineshare Marketing Podcast. Thank you very much. Excited to chat with you guys. Thanks. And, and so Charlie, tell me your current role. So you currently work with both Samsonite and Toomey. Obviously, Samsonite acquired Toomey. What's the difference between being the chief digital officer at Toomey and being the global chief e-commerce officer at Samsonite? It's a fair question and one that I think you know everybody has their various corporate structures. And in our case, our corporate structure came about by way of an acquisition, which you referenced. And so when I was at Toomey, I was the global chief digital officer, which meant that I had P&L control around the world of both the Toomey.coms as well as our direct e-commerce relationships like Amazon, Zalando, Tmall, et cetera. The way Samsung is structured is more decentralized by region, but they still saw the need to have some sort of cohesion across not only the world, but of their portfolio. And one of the things that I don't think is obvious to the outsider, and it certainly wasn't obvious to me before we were acquired by them, is Samsonite actually owns over 10 brands globally. They own Samsonite, Toomey, American Tourister, High Sierra, Gregory, Spec, uh, you know, the list goes on. And ultimately, we thought that there should be some sort of role that functioned as sort of a global consultant that helps draw best practices around the world. So that is my Samsonite hat. And then the Toomey hat is a bit more traditional where I have P&L control over, over digital. Wow, very cool. And so how do you split your time between the two roles? Um, you know, I think for me, I spend more time on the P&L. I don't mind admitting that, that I spend a lot of time with Toomey. But I also am very proud that the team that we have on Toomey is very you know, self-sufficient. You know, they, they can drive the business in a way that the less they need me, the more I feel proud of that fact. And, and that's sort of an odd thing to say, but it really is true. And with Samson, I, I try to make quarterly trips to our major global epicenters, right? So we have an office in Belgium. We have an office in Santiago, Chile. We have an office in uh, Hong Kong. And office, we have Samson has a U.S. office in Boston. I like to get out there quarterly for around a week. And then also, you know, what I would call a surgical strike, right? So we're launching a site in Korea. We're launching a site in China. I'll probably have a, a trip out there. So it's probably, I would call it 65, 35, if you made me guess, but it really is a matter of need. But Toomey is certainly the um, one that takes up the majority of my time. Sure. Yeah, totally get and appreciate that. And so then moving forward, obviously you were at Toomey first and then Samsonite acquired Toomey. How did the Samsonite acquisition affect your overall strategy with the Toomey brand? That's a great question because what's interesting about our segment, which 
I think you could rightfully kind of lump us into luggage, right? But the reality is, to me and Samsonite and obviously High Sierra, you have to lump in backpacks and you lump in casual business bags. And, and so it's sort of this nebulous world of a lot of products. But the way the acquisition really has affected our strategy is Tumi is a premium brand, right? And Samsonite is priced a little bit lower and American Tourist is priced a little bit lower. So it made it more important that we sort of stratify our segment, right? And, and the one thing you don't want to do as a portfolio is to have brands cannibalize each other, right? So you sure. think about, you know, Daimler Chrysler and, and the number of car brands they have, or you think about Mercedes. And so, you know, I think for us, it was just made it the fact that the onus became that much more important that Toomey remained premium and couldn't get pulled into this commodities price point. One, because I think that that price point's a little harder to compete in a world of Amazon. And two, because we already have brands in our portfolio that are servicing that price point better than anyone in the world. So I think that's like the number one effect it had on our strategy on a meta basis. Okay, great. And so then tell me, how has your team uh, constructed it to me? How, what's your in-house department look like versus what do you outsource? I have underneath me, so my direct reports are a director of online marketing, director of technology, a director of online merchandising, a director of creative, and a director of what I would call operations. And I'm making those titles up, but I use them specifically to kind of convey that I really want to have functional expertise underneath me. And that's important to me because if we have a larger strategy, the one thing we don't want to worry about is how that strategy is going to be functionally implemented. And I think you can get caught up there if you are trying to oversee a, a more cohesive strategy, but you're still jumping into the details. And I think as a manager, it's, it's an area that I try to be very self-critical because I love being in the details. And I think actually our director of online marketing, one of my pledges to her this year was to frankly, let her sink or swim a little bit more on her own. She's capable. She's better at it than I am already, but it's sort of a personal passion of mine. So I can somehow be a little bit too hands-on. So what we outsource, not a ton. We have an SEM agency we like a lot. We have a product listing ad or PLA agency that we like a lot. And then we have our back-end kind of day-to-day hybrid support, our level one support outsourced to your team. And that's about it. You know, We have technology partners, but I really do want to have people that can own their functional area in a way that they can answer all the questions, whether it's high-level strategy or, or more nitty-gritty. Great. And Charlie, so tell me, when you uh, have such a qualified team in-house, how do you balance getting your hands dirty, so to speak, versus letting your team do their job? Well, I think that comes down to having a cohesive plan, right? And so one of the exercises I'll give you as sort of an anecdote that answers your question well, I think, is last week, we sat down as a team. Ironically, a fire alarm had gone off in our office. So we did this outside of the picnic table outside of our office, which is an interesting detail. But the question was, what are the things we have to accomplish in the next six months, right? Because it's the end of June. It's about halfway through the year. And it's not, what do we have to accomplish in the next six months so that we make our budget in the next six months? It's what do we have to accomplish in the next six months where we make our budget in the next six months, but we also make our budget next year. Right, because some of these things you have to put in place far before they're actually relevant. Right, so to give you an example, in 2016 when we did this exercise, one of the things we were very bullish on was Apple Pay. Right, and there was Apple Pay was going to have a minimal impact on our 2016 numbers, but we knew mobile conversion on a meta basis was going to be important. Right, and we wanted to focus sure. on that in 2017. Therefore, you need to start thinking about Apple Pay in June of 2016. So. We just did that exercise. We all aligned on what the functional things we needed to do were important. And then once from there, off you go, right? Like, so now I feel comfortable that Taryn, Naveen, Teresa, Jason, Gianna, Mark, they all know what their edicts are. And hopefully at the end of the year, if they do them, 
they can feel like they accomplished them. And if they don't do them, I think it's equally important that there's no one to point a finger at, right? Where you can have accountability. And the, the last thing you want is you don't want people to have deniability just because no one ever had a clear responsibility. And it happens a lot, right? It's so easy to get lost in the shuffle. And I think sometimes in large corporations, people do it intentionally, where the best way to ensure and insulate themselves for stuff is just, you never have direct responsibility. But, you know, Teresa on my team, for example, is responsible for leveraging a new technology we have called dynamic action. She can't do that herself, right? But now it's very clear that she's the one that owns that project and she'll be kind of helping the others do it. So, I mean, I think in short, it's just a matter, Tyler, of having clear accountability and understanding who's responsible for what, but it's so often that that isn't the case. Love that, Charlie. And marketing leaders listening to this, go rewind that last two minutes and listen to that again. That is such key advice when you're managing teams to give them ownership of what they're working on and to really let them take charge and be accountable, like Charlie said. So great advice there, Charlie. And yeah, totally get where you're coming from. So you you talk about planning ahead, which again, amen. And I know for a lot of us, we feel like we're preaching to the choir. Sometimes you can get your organization to plan ahead with you. And sometimes, you know, you can lead them to water, but you can't make them drink. So on your side, you guys sound like you're doing a great job planning ahead over there at Toomey and Samsonite. So what are your biggest priorities, not just as we uh, have Q4 sneaking up on us, but also going into 2018, what are your priorities looking like? So if you go back to what I said to open the show specifically about Toomey, it was making sure that there was no muddling of price points so that we were maintaining our premium status. And one of the tactics underneath that, that is the most important thing to ensure that you accomplish that is to drive full price sell-through rate. To put it another way, if you have a bunch of stuff that you have to discount to liquidate, that looks cheap, right? And look, like I don't mean to oversimplify, but that's just the reality of the world. If you have a store that looks like a flea market, you're not going to get that premium expectation of the customer. So the tactic underneath that is you have to sell a bunch of stuff full price. And now there are so many things that go into selling stuff on full price. You have to have a cohesion between marketing, merchandising, and inventory management. You have to have a great top of funnel customer acquisition strategy to kind of drive new customers to buy at full price. You have to have a great CRM platform to make rebuys, drive the customer journey, et cetera. But I think what's important is we have a clear meta initiative, right? The meta initiative is how do we maximize our full price sell-through rate? And then underneath that, you go back into compartmentalizing it in functional areas, right? So now, what does that mean to digital marketing? What does that mean to technology? And ironically, you could make an argument that driving mobile conversion is one of the things we're going to have to do. Therefore, Apple Pay is important, right? And so it's a great example of having a meta strategy instead of a tactical need. Driving full price is a bunch of tactics underneath a meta. And for us, that's going to be our focus, not only for the rest of this year, but for the rest of the, for next year as well. That's great. And so along with that, Charlie, comes brand loyalty. So mm-hmm. when you talk about building brand loyalty, especially when you've got a lot more top of funnel acquisition. So some people that maybe they're making their first to me or Samsonite purchase. How do you go about building that loyalty to the brands for the long term? Well, it's so easy. And I think that this is one of those points that can be used, whether you're B2C, whether you're selling bags, whether you're selling almonds, or whether you're selling enterprise software in a B2B environment, which is the pitch of, yeah, but we do it better is a really hard sell, right? Like I can tell you that the ballistic nylon bag that Toomey kind of popularized and is the same material that's used in a bulletproof vest. Great, right? 
it's going to be really hard for me to sell you that in this world of new brands popping up on Kickstarter every five minutes, no, no, trust me, we do it better, right? So yes, that's table stakes, right? You have to have a great product. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to minimize the fact that a product is remarkably important. I'm just saying that from a outside looking in and to answer your question directly, Tyler, like how do you maintain brand loyalty? It's not enough, right? And in our world, a couple of things jump to mind. We have to be the absolute best at after sales service, right? Like if you think about luggage specifically, when is the worst time ever with your luggage? It's when you're rolling through somewhere and your wheel pops off before you get to your plane. Of course. Right. And one of those stories that resonates with me is you'll hear stories from too many customers all the time, which was I was running through JFK Terminal 4. I broke a wheel and I saw a Toomey store. I came in there with a frazzled look on my face. And the next thing you know, they were giving me a loaner bag and saying, don't worry about it. We'll mail your other bag for you when you fix and then you can send the loaner bag home. Right. Those little moments are what ensure brand loyalty more than anything else. So after sales service is important. And also for me, I do think you can kind of turn your question on the head a little bit and say, brand loyalty means why interact with the brand as opposed to where else the brand is sold, right? So our brand is sold at some great stores. It's sold at Nordstrom, it's sold at Amazon, it's sold at Barney's, it's sort of stacked. You know, why come directly to Toomey? And that's where I think as a retailer, you really also have to think about answering that question. It's the most simple question on earth, which is why did they come to you? For us, it was alluded to before, it's not going to be about price. Right? We have no intention of subverting price in the market to win. So we have exclusive products on Toomey.com. We have things that you get access to only if you come to Toomey stores or only if you are subscribed to our email list. And it is not about price. So I think those are the main things is you have to answer yourself what differentiates your brand experience from even your wholesale partners. But more importantly, like how do you protect your customers after they've bought that product, which can cost upwards of $1,000? And, and I think that's where you see great brands uh, differentiate themselves. Wow, great advice there too. And we talk about that phrase, surprising and delighting your customers all the time. And that's a great example of it. Uh, I wasn't aware that you had that program that you could bring in the bag literally in the airport. And what a great opportunity for you guys to help your customers out when they're in a bind. Yeah, it's again, like the surprise is one thing. The delight is hopefully a byproduct of your service. But you have to ask yourself, what is the situation that our customer is going to need us most? And the fact of the matter is, is for us, that's an easy question. But, you know, I think brands sometimes rely so much on distribution strategy or they rely so much on merchandising strategy. But answer that question. Like, what do your customers really want from you? And not only in the product, but after they buy it. And that's a thing that I don't believe that enough brands ask themselves, which is why people and consumers are starting to think about more about where they buy it as opposed to what they buy. And that's a scary thing for brands, right? Like the world's becoming more and more commoditized. And if you don't have a differentiated something, you're probably in trouble long-term. That's absolutely true, Charlie. And so now taking more of a 30,000 foot view again, you know, it's been over a year. You haven't been at Tubi that long. You've only been there a little over a year, right? Yeah, so I joined Toomey in January of 2016 and the acquisition by Samsonite finalized in August of 2016. So it's been about 19 months with the corporation, almost a year under the Samsonite umbrella. Okay, great. And so compare that to your previous experiences with brands like The Line and Lucky Brand. How is your experience and your strategy at Toomey different from some of your previous stops in the e-commerce game? Well, I'll speak about it from a personal perspective because I do think every brand strategy is different. Like, look, there's nothing wrong with being a value brand and like trying to win on price. I'm not trying to 
put like a huge negativity about that strategy as a whole. It's just not right for Toomey. So at Lucky Brand, for example, we were a bit more promotional, but you know, we were also it was sort of at the infancy of e-commerce to a certain extent. You know, it was 2006, I think, or 2005, and so it was just very different. It was about understanding like how do we use the web as an omni device, and this was before every single person on earth was using the word omni-channel 15 times a day. I mean, it, it was really kind of understanding like we thought of it as a, our most important store, and then we eventually tried to figure out like how can the digital be used in a more cohesive way. At the line, the line was really about understanding what digital could mean as a drive to store, right? The entire premise was if you had an immersive enough experience online, then it mitigated the need for a ground floor store window. And that was a really kind of novel approach and and it continues to work really well to this day. But for me, the fabric that ties all three together is you really have to learn a lot about yourself from a management perspective. And I think missteps I took personally at both those now inform my strategy today. So at Lucky, I'm a naturally analytical person. I think that focus on analysis caused me to discount the need for creative merchandising, right? And it's something that you kind of take and you you take that loss and you make sure you say to yourself, I'm never going to do that again. And ironically, I believe that need to be creative and merchandise driven is more and more and more important the more premium you get. And then at the line, I think that I made the world a little bit too democratic, right? Like it was so hey, I'm going to let everybody just drive their functional areas to the point where I didn't make that clear strategy over the top of it at certain times. And it was a little too kind of laissez-faire. In finding those middle grounds, I'm not sure it's possible to do without making mistakes, right? And that's okay. And so for me, the fabric is you learn from your mistakes at every single place you go and you try to use it to inform your different strategies. I'm sure when and if I ever leave Tumi or Samsonite, which I have no plans of doing and I hope it doesn't happen for a long time, but if it happens, I'll be able to look back at certain things and be like, man, I, I wish I would have done that differently. And it just makes you a better manager going forward. Absolutely, Charlie. And, and you guys heard it here first. He's committed long-term, not opting out of his uh, contract to test the free agent market. <laughs> Charlie Cole is committed, ladies and gentlemen. Good to know. And uh, Charlie, that's a lot of great insight. And uh, I think that's something that every marketing leader deals with at various points in their career. And I think the big thing, like you said, is just to learn from it. You know, you've got to learn from what worked and didn't work and make better decisions off that information in the future. Yeah. One of the things that I kind of urge everyone to do is, you know, try to take an outsider's perspective at at your current role and, and responsibility, right? Because we're all victims of our circumstance for better or worse, right? And so I, for me, one of the things that I'm most grateful of, and I didn't intend for this to happen, it was just a natural byproduct of my career arc, is I've worked in fashion, both kind of more sub-contemporary with Lucky Brand and luxury with the line and now premium with Toomey. I've worked in CPG. I've worked in an advertising agency, right? And so put another way, I've had a lot of different experiences from a lot of different perspectives. If you have been at the same company for 10 years, and this doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're, quote unquote, an older school company like Macy's or a newer school company like Amazon. If you've only worked one place, you've only experienced one culture. And I think at times you can become a little bit more insular from a thought perspective. And again, this is not a bad thing. There's nothing wrong with staying at one company for a long time, as long as you're self-aware of it, right? And how do you continue to evolve when you're subjected to one type of person and one type of culture? For me, it became a natural byproduct of how my career progressed, and I'm lucky for that. But I also think I could learn a lot from you know what caused someone to stay at a brand for 15 years, because that's what I'm hoping is going to happen this time around. So 
I would just be very aware of your surroundings and understand what your natural tendencies are going to be because of your circumstances that you don't necessarily always control. Yeah, that's a great point, Charlie. And uh, one thing I think that's incredibly prevalent, especially in the e-commerce and marketing industries right now is job hopping, especially with, you know, I hate to just mass categorize a, a group of people, but the millennial generation, especially like it used to be that someone only being at a job for 12 months at a time before they hopped onto their next one would be a red flag. And now it seems to be the industry standard. It's like, oh, I've put in my year here. I'm going to go experience something different. So what are some things that you're doing on your side to attract and retain great talent? So last week, I actually asked those same functional leaders that I mentioned before, I was like, what should your continued education be? Where do you go to think about this? And it's for the people that you know have kind of a management arc to them. And, and look, like I take it as a personal insult if people don't progress. If I have a director of merchandising who's offered VP of merchandising at a different company and I can't match that offer, that's a hard conversation, but one that you should really take as a compliment as a manager. But I do believe in continued education and it can't just be, I'm the VP of marketing. I want to go take a marketing class. So I'm like, well, is that your biggest weakness where you really need help? So I do believe in continued education. And also I believe in kind of constant feedback, both up and down the ladder. I don't pretend to be perfect by any means. And I want to kind of facilitate an open and honest conversation amongst the team. And by doing that, I think it gives them a better reason to stay. If they know that they can kind of, they're not limited to the box they're in now. My first day at Toomey, I sat down with everybody. I'm like, why isn't your job fun? What do you want to be accomplishing that you're not accomplishing? And if somebody said, you know, my life's perfect, then great. But the fact of the matter is, is that 85, 90% of them said, here's what I'd like to be focused on. And hopefully we give them an opportunity to do that. Yeah, that's great. We actually have a tactic we picked up from, are you familiar with Entree Leadership? I am not. Okay, great podcast. I'll give them a plug. They're super sharp people over there. But one thing they talked about in one of their episodes that we implemented at Fidelitas was making everyone give us their personal mission statement. What are you trying to do in life? And it's, it's worked out incredibly well, like you said, just gleaning that insights. And it sounds like you're doing it in just a slightly different way of figuring out you know, who has management aspirations, who's happy where they are, and they, they just want to be a little bit better, who frankly might just be here for a J-O-B and you know, those are the ones that you don't want to last in the long run anyways. And ideally, we try to avoid hiring those folks versus people that are a little bit more intentional with their careers and what they want to do. And they want to be a part of something bigger. There's something we said, if you think you're not learning, and if you think you're not progressing in anything you're doing, right, whether it's your job, I would argue, whether it's in a relationship, I would argue, whether it's in a friendship, chances are it's not that accretive, right? And that might be a bit of a Machiavellian statement. But I think it's true, right? I think that if you are literally standing still in a relationship of any kind, there's probably one better out there for you. And I didn't mean to get all Dr. Phil on you there, but I, I think that's definitely true to the jobs that we're talking about now. But I think it's also true in, in your personal life. Absolutely. Not only are we going to make you better professionally on this edition of the Lion's Share Marketing Podcast, we're going to make you a better person. So thank you for that. Uh, yeah, I would kill to be able to do a Dr. Phil impression right now, but I think my Dr. Phil impression needs a little bit more grooming. Okay. Well, when you're ready to debut it, let me know. We'll have you back on. We're all about that. So. Okay. <laughs> Understood. <laughs> so Charlie, like you said, you've been with Toomey in some capacity for about 19 months now. When you jump onto a global brand like that in a leadership position, obviously there's a lot more nuances and things to consider and things to learn and learn quickly when you're talking about a global brand versus a, a national brand or a regional chain. So when you're talking about a global brand like that, how did you onboard yourself and get up to speed with the different nuances of the global markets that you're dealing with at Toomey? 
<laughs> I alluded before to some missteps in the past. This is definitely something I've learned in the past. You kind of just listen for a while, man. You have to make peace with the fact that the world doesn't bend to your existence as fast as you want. Now, that doesn't mean one can't make changes quickly. You can still come in and use that cliche term. You can disrupt the organization. But at the same time, I knew so little about the brand heritage. And I knew so little about the brand dynamics and internal dynamics. But I got a lot of great advice, right? I sat there and I worked with our creative director. I worked with our CEO. I worked with our head of merchandise. I'm like, look, like, what's been terrible from your perspective about the digital team so far? And it's hard, right? Because you're going to get a lot of different perspectives and you're going to get everybody's personal biases. You're going to get everybody's own stuff in there. But you sit down and listen a lot and you travel a lot and you sit down with people and you work from face to face and you go and you visit stores. You just can't fake that level of understanding an organization unless you kind of immerse yourself in it. So I think my old tactic, Tyler, would have been analyze the hell out of the business and understand what the numbers say about the business. That is a subset of what you have to do, but I think you have to start to understand the culture a little bit more before you can really make brand changes. Amen. And I think too many marketing leaders tend to do that, especially I think that's partly why you see so much changeover with agencies too, is immediately as soon as someone gets brought in, they want to make their mark and everything that was there is gone for better or worse. And then it's uh, out with the old and with the new. And I think sometimes you can throw yeah. the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to good ideas or things that weren't broken. You know, not everything needs to be. Yeah, it, it's, it's tough, right? I mean, because you, and I'm sorry, the royal you when you enter a new role, unless that role was created for you, if that role was created for you, like no one's ever done the job before, okay, that means that the organization wasn't capable of doing it before you. That's the, that's the expectation is that you're going to come and solve a problem that they couldn't solve themselves. Or if you replace someone, the expectation is you're going to change something that was broken, right? Or you're going to pick up what was working from somebody who retired or whatever. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that there is these subliminal expectations at every job you ever take. If you get too caught up in doing that overnight, then you can alienate the culture. And I do feel personally, looking back specifically at my time at Lucky Brand, that was what I fell victim to. I was so excited to make my mark and change stuff that I just did what I do naturally, which is analyze the business and make changes based on the numbers. And by doing so, I neglected the people and the existing culture. And I think it's a natural mistake to make. And the scary part is you can do it while still driving great business results. So slow down, accept the culture, and just you know accept the fact that things might happen a little slower, but you'll be better off in the long term. Great advice, Charlie. And that goes for agencies too. I, I mean, it's the same thing. Like when we onboard a new client, you don't want to come in and just change everything for the sake of changing it. And you've got to be sensitive to the culture you're coming into. Great advice. Yep. So Charlie, as we, as we kind of pivot here, what do you perceive as your biggest challenges with Samsonite and Tumi? You know, I think we're still trying to understand how to strategize as a portfolio digitally. I don't think that's a challenge for say. I think it's growing pains. It's new, right? Anything new is challenging and you have to kind of accept it. But I do also think it's emerging of two types of cultures, which is Samsonite has been traditionally a wholesale-driven corporation. Tumi has been a retail direct-to-consumer corporation. And you can't immediately change from one to another. And you have to find the best parts of one side and the best parts of the other side and understand how to merge them. And that's what we're going through. So I'm confident we have the team in place. I'm confident we have the know-it-all. I'm confident we have the product. Now it's just a matter of making the cultures mesh. And, and frankly, as a pretty self-critical guy, I think we're doing a great job. Like I'm really happy with the results so far. We just have to continue to be very mindful of that moving forward. Excellent. And so Charlie, how have you gone about enabling your teams for success as you move forward with trying to merge these cultures and continue developing the brands at large? 
Sort of what I said before, I take kind of a real like watch and learn approach and figure out where we can add value without changing what's working, right? So a great example of having, I don't know the number, let's just call it 200 websites around the world, right? Between the brands, between the countries, et cetera. I'm making that number up, but it's directionally accurate. Doing things like unifying analytics, right? So we're all saying the same things, right? That's something that seems very benign, right? It seems like, okay, that doesn't seem earth shattering, but all of a sudden you're speaking the same language and you, you have confidence that the numbers that you're comparing to one another cross brand, cross border are fair and accurate and are saying the right things. That's a big deal, right? It's a great example of something where I didn't change anything. I didn't change what anyone was doing. We have the team that frankly can manage themselves and know what they're doing. Like our head of Europe is doing a great job. He doesn't need me to tell him how to run a digital business, but I can help him by providing more accurate numbers around the world to benchmark against. It's a great example of just finding a way to get cohesion without upsetting the apple cart from an operations perspective. Awesome. And so again, you talk about unifying analytics and obviously that requires a lot of collaboration across the board. How do you go about encouraging that collaboration between your departments and even between brands when necessary? Well, I don't know if encouraging is an option. You know, we are a portfolio, right? And we are a global portfolio. And so if you don't want to work as part of a global portfolio, then you probably shouldn't be in one. You have to want to be collaborative. And yes, you can do things from a compensation perspective to drive behavior, but I do think it's more of a cultural thing. Now, thankfully, I learned very early on with having nothing to do with myself. Like I, I get absolutely no credit for this. We had a remarkably collaborative and open team, right? The team from Samsonite in Europe and Asia and the US were so quick to embrace collaboration. And so someone before me, probably our CEO Ramesh, had done a great job of kind of making that collaborative environment exist before me. But I don't think that somebody who's more of like, I just wanted my management panel, I want to be siloed, I don't want to work nice with others. I don't think you survive in a portfolio. Like I don't think you could work at a Procter & Gamble or a Samsonite or, or even like a VF Corp. You have to want to collaborate with each other because what's the point of having a portfolio if you're not going to try to derive synergies from it? It just seems silly. Great point, Charlie. When uh, you talked earlier, you spoke about you know a lot of SEM and PLA strategy and you bring in outside partners to help with that. What's your approach to programmatic ad placement and a lot of the challenges that brands at large are facing with either, uh, like for example, the YouTube troubles with linking up with bad videos and, and then there's such generous offer of, yeah, you know, we're going to credit your account $3, which I found that quite humorous. Have you had any experience with that? And if so, how have you dealt with it? Look, it's sort of a no win, right? We all know that there's these walled gardens who dominate advertising right? And they're Facebook and Google. And underneath those things are Instagram and WhatsApp and YouTube and Google search and, you know, GDN, the whole nine yards. And that's the reality of our industry. So not playing with them because they screw up is not an option, right? Like I think Facebook has had to say three times now, oh, by the way, what we've been charging you has been wrong. <laughs> right? yep. and it's just like, what are you going to do? You kind of have to throw your hands up. But what you can do is you can just manage the hell out of them. Right? And you can try to hold them accountable. You can do site exclusions, et cetera. You can leverage third-party technologies. But I think that the one thing you can't do is be an idealist about it. You just have to make sure you're managing them on a day-to-day -day basis, that you have a site exclusion list, that you're bouncing the numbers off against third parties wherever possible. I think those are your only options. I, don't, I wish I had a better answer for you, Tyler, but I don't think there's anything you can do besides to be remarkably anal retentive on a day-to-day -day basis with the folks that are going to really drive your advertising strategy. Great advice there. I know it's maybe oversimplified, but there's a lot of truth to that. I think a lot of times 
especially like senior level execs that aren't in the thick of it say, well, why can't we just take our ball and go home? But it's really, where, where are you yeah, going to go? There are no other options. My friend Ian Lurie, who runs an SEO agency in Seattle, once had a great quote. And I won't tell you what company he was talking about just because I don't want to put anybody down or put anyone on the spot. But his line was, this company is still the cute little tiger cub that when it grows up, it will eat you, right? And that's reality, right? Like these are all great partners. They're instrumental to your business. But at the same time, you know, don't be naive. <laughs> that would be my number one piece of advertising advice is just don't be naive. And you also mentioned earlier, Charlie, one more follow-up question. You know, you guys are on the Hybris platform for e-commerce, correct? Yes. Okay, great. And so were you involved in choosing the platform or did you inherit it? I inherited it. Okay, great. So what's been your experience? And again, not to either plug or take away from Hybris, every platform has their pluses and minuses. But when it goes to choosing a great e-commerce platform for your brand, what factors should you consider and what should marketing leaders and e-commerce leaders keep top of mind when considering different e-commerce platforms? I'm shocked I've never been asked this question before. It's a good one. So here's the reality of an e-commerce platform. If you're buying an off-the-shelf e-commerce platform, and I don't care if it's Shopify, Magento, Foxcommerce, Hybris, Demandware, Elastic Path is still bouncing around. I think Blue Martini still exists. Like, whatever. Understand it is not a strategic advantage. This is the most romanticized thing in our industry, and I'll never understand it because I see, you know, first thing e-commerce people do is they read platform to Demandware or Hybris. Well, congratulations, you're now on a level playing field with your entire competitive set. Right? Like you have no advantage by definition. It's an off-the-shelf system. It'd be like saying LeBron James has an advantage because he wears Nikes. Like it's just insane. I think you have to appreciate the fact that this is a commodity technology that is going to be used by everyone. Else. Okay, so now what differentiates them? Well, support, cost, partners in sort of other functional areas like plugins. And I think that that's where people need to focus, right? They need to focus about how they're going to take this commodity asset and turn it into what they need to truly be different. And if you're just hoping Demandware is the solution to your problems, or if Hybris is the solution to your problems, you're not going to win. You're just not. Because again, there is nothing preventing every single one of your competitors from using the exact same thing. Truth. And the great thing, and again, the differences between platforms continues to shrink. You know, the on-premise platforms continue to add cloud-based solutions and the cloud-based solutions can mm-hmm. alter their pricing options. I mean, everyone's losing the differentiation between their competition on that side. It's commodity, man. Like imagine like the, the analogy I make for you, think about how much there was battles between ESPs in like 2006. Silverpop, responses, exact target, uh, cheetah man, like who's going to be the best, blah, blah, blah. And now it's just a commodity where you go and you shop and the UIs are pretty similar and the deliverability is pretty similar and the CPMs are pretty similar. And so then again, you have to ask, what am I really trying to get out of this commoditized platform? It's shocking to me that people are thinking this thing that everyone on earth has is going to be the end all be all of their business. It's an enabler. It is not a strategy. It's an enabler of a strategy. And, And don't mix those two things. Great point. And on that note, Charlie, uh, any software you're using that you think has made a difference for you or given you a little bit of an advantage that you could plug for our listeners? Yeah, you know, I have a couple that would leave to mind that we've been very happy with. You know, we, we partnered with Agile One to solve this very convoluted mix of CRM data management, predictive technology, you know, segmentation, et cetera. And they've done a great job. And I've been very, very happy with them. You know, we have some other partners that I'm excited about testing. We're in the process of finalizing testing with Narvar, which helps a lot in customer service and tracking. They've been a great partner. 
We've seen very good early reads with smart gift, which is kind of how do we make our item as giftable as possible. We've been very lucky. You know, we've been very, very lucky with some great partners. But I think, you know, the, the best advice I can give people is just keep testing, right? Because I think people forget that Moore's Law is a thing and that technology is doubling. And if you're thinking your technology that you bought three years ago is the best in class, well, it still might be. But that doesn't mean there hasn't been advancements around it. And you need to just kind of continue to be out there in the market testing and learning so that's the best way to know what's new. Spot on, Charlie. And so as we look ahead to where technology is going, what do you see as next? What, what's, what's coming up around the corner? Well, you know, this leveraging of insert cliche here, artificial intelligence, machine learning, deep learning, whatever you want to call it. Like, look, there are certain things that there's no reason that a human should be better at than a computer. Right. It just isn't like if you think about when you're driving, what your brain should be doing is constant mathematics. How fast that thing going in front of me, if I turn red, be able to get there in front of it. That all it is is constant mathematics. If the visualization software is there, there is no reason you, me are better than a, in a computer. Right. And this has been proven in smaller things. Like if you've seen what's been happening with uh, Google DeepMind beating the world champion at Go, all sure. Go is, is a constantly changing equation. Right. So ask yourself, what in your business is go is a constantly changing equation? Ad optimization, on-site personalization, email personalization, send personalization, search optimization. All these things are a constantly changing equations. So I do think there's still this idea of how artificial intelligence is going to evolve to help us magnify certain things. That's gonna happen. That's coming up. And then you kind of have to make your bets. Right now in the United States, it's still pretty normal for over half your traffic to come from mobile and have it be under a quarter of transactions. So does that mean that we as humans in the United States are going to get more comfortable buying stuff on a responsive design website? I think you have to invest in that, right? And you have to invest in that assumption. And so that's where you have to kind of delineate this idea of investing in a tactic, i.e. artificial intelligence, versus investing in like a meta. Like I believe people are going to buy more and more things on a mobile phone. Okay. I also believe that does not necessarily mean in an app. Okay, what do I invest in? So, you know, those are two things that I think you can't have your head in the sand about. Spot on. And that's a really good uh, way of looking at it because I think everyone's trying to figure out, you know, where's everything going with technology. But, you know, that phrase, what is a constant changing equation? And then just plan on that being replaced is a really good way of looking at it because that's absolutely where everything is headed. Yeah. And try I want to be respectful of your time here. It's been awesome having you on. You've given so many great nuggets for our marketing leaders to pick up on. And definitely, it's been a great interview. But one last question for you, which is, Charlie, if you could just leave one piece of advice or one thing for a key takeaway for our marketing leaders to remember from our discussion today, what would that be? I think for me, that answer would be, what are you learning right now? Right. And if you can't answer that question, you need to have a good answer. And I mean new, right? I mean something that you would say, I'm a three out of 10 and I'm developing into a five out of 10 or a seven out of 10. Right. So for me, I can tell you that every day in this role, I'm learning more and more about global perspective. And I'm learning about the idiosyncrasies of China, Korea, Japan, Australia. And I could also say, I am not good at it yet. So I'm going to continue to learn and I'm going to continue to evolve. If you're just standing still and you're just pulling levers and you say to yourself, you know, what'd you do today? Well, I altered bids in Google. Well, do you know how to do that? Yes. Then how are you going to get better at it? Or what is the new thing you're going to learn to complement it? And I think too often we can be heads down in a 60-hour-a-week job and, and we just neglect to evolve. And it's something you have to be conscious about. 
That's great advice. And, uh, you know, again, that's something that we preach internally at Fidelitas. And I hope all of our marketing leaders take to heart as you should always be improving, always growing, always trying to be better. Charlie, this has been awesome. Uh, thanks again for so much great content and knowledge that you shared with us today. If people want to get in touch with you or connect with you, where can they go to do that? So a bunch of ways. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter at, at Charlie Cole, or anyone can email me. My email is charlie.cole at toomey.com. Those are the best ways to get a hold of me. Perfect. Sounds great. And Charlie, thanks again for jumping on. All the best wishes to you up in Seattle. Hope you guys get an NBA team sooner than later. Todd, you and me both and an NHL team. And I hope the sun continues. <laughs> Amen. All right. Until next time, Charlie, thanks again for joining us on the Lion Share Marketing Podcast. My pleasure. So we'd just like to say thanks again to Charlie Cole for coming on to the podcast. If you're looking for show notes, you can go on over to lionssharepodcast.com slash 14. You'll find all the show notes there, along with some information about offline events from Facebook. Also, please make sure to subscribe on iTunes if you haven't already. And stay tuned for episode 15. Until next time, cheers. been listening to the lion share podcast brought to you by fidelitas development your marketing partner for better brand loyalty